Alrighty, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Osher hanging out with the lovely and talented Richie Hilte. What's up, Richie Hilte? How are you, my brother? Good to see you. Mary Goulet is out doing her wonderful stuff in the world. Wade's got it under control in the booth over there, and uh, Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters and here on Beyond Eight Figures. We do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually and get to the bottom of how they started, scaled, and in some cases, exited from those businesses. And so really do appreciate you guys tuning in. A lot of great feedback, uh, a lot of great uh, reviews there. Really appreciate uh, you guys really taking the time to, to share your thoughts uh, on the show and do try to join us live. If you haven't joined us live yet, know that we do broadcast live every Thursday. You can catch us at noon Pacific, and you can just go to beyond8figures.com. That is the number eight there in the middle. And, of course, we'd love to have you join the conversation. And uh, the other thing we'd love to have you join is uh, is our pre-launch movement for our new magazine. And uh, many will be joining us here in just a second or two, Minnie Ingersoll, and that'll be fun to chat with you. And, and Minnie, you'll appreciate this because you have your own podcast, the LA Venture Podcast. Uh, but we we actually are launching Podcast Magazine. And so Podcast Magazine will be launching in uh, Q1 of 2020. And, uh, and that will be dedicated to covering podcasts, podcast culture, and uh, of course, taking you into the lives of the podcasters that fans love. And uh, super excited about that. And pre-launch, you can grab a free lifetime subscription to Podcast Magazine at podcastmagazine.com. So make sure you do join us there in that conversation. And uh, I'm super excited about that. And, uh, and and really excited to jump into this. And we've got uh, quite a quite a bit of ground to cover here. It's not every day that you uh, have an opportunity to sit down with someone who has their pulse on the world of entrepreneurship in in, uh, in quite the ways that uh, that our guest today does. So let's uh, wait. Let's let's bring up Minnie straight away here, and let's just jump straight into it. So Minnie Ingersoll uh, is joining us. You're over in uh, in LA, correct? True. True. Hi. True. Hi. How are you? Good to see you. <laughs> Good to see you. Lovely to have you here. And uh, so many right now is with 10110 uh, Venture Capital, uh, but you're also still actively involved with uh, with Shift, correct? Uh, I, for the most part, have left my have left Shift, which is the company I started. So, okay. uh, so now fully focused on being a, a VC. But are you involved on a board level still with Shift? I am not involved on a board level. I'm wow. a, uh, I think they call me a senior advisor now. Wow. Okay. So you are completely out of that. So let's, let's go and, and we can go way back here and, and background with Google. And I mean, you've just been a long time tech. And it's funny too, because in, in this world, you know, you look at many and you go, well, we talk about a long time veteran of the industry. I mean, you're still really, really young, but yet, you know, when you look at, the experience and the things that you've done over the years, you've been involved with some, with some major, major companies. What was this always the thinking coming out of school? Were you, were you, did you know you had a love for tech and you were going to find your way into, into the tech world somehow, some way? No, I mean, I think what you said is really true, which is a lot of this is a fairly new discipline. So I was a product manager at Google for more than a decade, but when I went to Stanford, uh, product management wasn't something that was taught. Yeah. Entrepreneurship now is taught in a lot of places, and that certainly wasn't taught 
um, I almost said 10 years ago, but you know, maybe yeah. it was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And so as far as Google goes, since, since we don't every day have the opportunity to sit down with someone who was entrenched in you know, what is arguably the most influential business company, entity, initiative, conglomerate, you know, <laughs> dynasty, whatever you want to call it, uh, in tech. What what are some of uh, just give us uh, if you could sum it up in in one maybe two key lessons that you learned being in that environment that you've now applied to the endeavor with Shift and now what you look for in companies and what you do with Ten One Ten. If you had to summarize those top one or two takeaways from your tenure at, at Google, what would the what would those be as it applies to entrepreneurship and and business development, et cetera? I mean, there's a lot to, to, to summarize. I was there for almost a third of my life um, at Google. I joined in 2002. Um, I think one of the things that I feel very deeply is the role of big companies in society. And so that's tech, but it doesn't. it's not just limited to tech. But what we've seen is things like Google making decisions or YouTube making decisions about what is freedom of speech. Um, and it's not because necessarily YouTube wants to make those decisions, but they have to, on a daily, hourly, minute by minute basis, decide what goes up and what comes down. And so, you know, it's something I, I think about a lot is what is the role of business and innovation in our society? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's one big thing. I think another, another thing I, I think a lot about with Google is um, Google really taught me to think bigger in a way. I think Larry Page is one of those people, every time you talk to him, you know, he wants to know, is this a $5 billion business? And I think we're talking about eight figures, but you know, he adds like many, many zeros to, and it's not about the money so much as just, he's thinking about what's going on at a world scale. Whereas I might be, you know, still thinking about what's going on, you know, in my life that afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is something to be said for that. I know uh, on, on a much smaller scale, having been an entrepreneur and actually started online and you may not know this, I started online a long, long time ago, actually in 1993, we launched on CompuServe's electronic mall. Uh, and that, that company ended up becoming liquor.com. Uh, when I picked up that domain in, in 98, we actually just exited to IAC. Uh, I wish we had a chance to chat prior because, uh, Lord knows there were a lot of mistakes that, uh, that I made along the way. And that would have been a, a brilliant conversation I've had. And of course it speaks to the power uh, of, of having someone in your corner who has kind of been there and done that and seen what they've seen and they can help you in, in, in their various ways. Uh, and, and just going back to the point of, you know, is this a $5 billion business? Just the fact is, as a, uh, I do a lot of coaching and, and helping my clients to create their own new media sales and marketing machines and, and so on uh, and build their businesses as coaches and authors and speakers and so on. Uh, and just thinking bigger in and of itself when you come right down to it, that's that's the best coach. I mean, that's the best mentor. That's the best person to have in your corner. Not someone who says, you know, put this line of code here and do this so you can pixel this folk. But, you know, let's figure out how you can get 100,000 people to your site instead of you're wanting just to get 1,000 people to your site on a monthly basis. So it sounds to me like maybe that was, well, certainly it sounds like that's part of what his influence was uh, on you. And uh, do you care to elaborate on that any further? Well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm a VC and one of the challenges is 
sometimes you think about what could go wrong. And I think one of the great things is when you meet someone who's always thinking about what if this all went right. Mm. Um, and I tend to see sort of the challenges in front of me. Um, and I think that the other challenge is sort of thinking, you know, what if we all had self-driving cars? You know, what if we, and fill in the blank on something crazy and not getting too hung up in that, in that stuff that's like, you know, the mundane stuff of how the world actually works. Uh, yeah. And and I think the other point, to your point, uh, talking about getting acquired by IAC and doing things wrong, I, I think there is some aspect of meeting with people who've been there and done it and seen things that's always helpful. But, you know, the secret is there is no secret mm. <laughs> and that everyone is going through, you know, no circumstances exactly the same and no people, you're always dealing with people and every person yeah. you're dealing with is a different person and has different motivations and you know, woke up on the right side of the bed or the wrong side of the bed. And so there's an aspect of everyone's kind of faking it yeah. as well. And I have to admit that I was a bit remiss because usually we come right out of the gate just to have clarity around how you meet the criteria here of Beyond Eight Figures. If you get a chance to listen to the show, you know that we we do ask that question. And so uh, as the co-founder and CEO of Shift and having raised a Series D and taken it to over $100 million and so on, I mean, I assume that is what you would hang your hat on in terms of how you meet the criteria of either having exited from a business for more than 10 million or running a business that grosses more than 10 million annually? Yes, that's true. Unfortunately, it's not that I started Google. We started there. But no, it's a, <laughs> it's a company that I started. Um, I was the co-founder of a company called Shift. It still exists, um, but I am no longer currently a part of it. But as you said, we um, were over 100 million when I left and now significantly more than that. Mm-hmm. So, so to that end, as a co-founder, so we're talking literally zero snippets of code, zero, I mean, this is just you and a couple of people sitting around the table with an idea. Take us back to the embryonic stages then of, of Shift. Was it, was it your idea? Were you brought in? Just give, give us a sense of what those embryonic stages look like. Sure. So my co-founder, George, and I had both worked at Google and George had been sort of pitching me on this idea for a long time. So it was definitely him more than it was me. Um, but he'd been talking to me about the used car sales are extremely broken, which is not, you know, that's not a hard thing to argue. Um, but that the financing of cars is really broken. Anyways, he'd been pitching me on this for a while and I ended up as an angel investor uh, in his PowerPoint, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then I went on maternity leave and uh sort of in my kind of, you know, spare time, I, I told him I would help him get it going. And that was just like showing up at his his apartment every day at 10 a.m. and like making sure he was out of bed and clothes and like ready to start the day. And, you know, we, and then there was, there were two other people who came in really we as co-founders at that time. And it was really the four of us just in George's apartment for a while until we moved to like an apartment down the street. But you know, it was just classic, like we had a whiteboard and we had um, some some hustle, but not much else. So let me let me just stop you there if I can. So a, a few things. Number one. So the idea was to disrupt the used car marketplace, both through acquisition and through financing. That was the that was the in, in a nutshell, sort of the one sentence synopsis of what shift was uh, designed to do. Yeah. Yes. Make used car buying and selling easy. Yeah. Gotcha. And enjoyable and maybe? enjoyable, right? Maybe. So, and 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 from an angel standpoint, can you disclose what that investment was as the as the and were you the first or were there other people in that friends and family or sort of angel round? 
Yeah, I think I invested uh, $20,000. Mm. I, and, um, you know, for me, I, you know, I was, uh, I had been at Google for a number of years and um, I was an angel investor who tended to invest $20,000 when they were friends who I said, I will invest in this friend. I was not extremely sophisticated, but this person is the sort of person I would like to be able to invest in what they're doing. And George mm -hmm. was one of those people. Um, and, and coupled that with the market aspect. So the fact that it was easy to see that the used car business was a $1.2 trillion market in the US. And so it was easy to see how if you take someone extremely sharp and have an extremely um, large market that hasn't had a lot of innovation in the past hundred years, it seemed like a reasonable bet to make. Mm -hmm. And so you put in the 20K, did the other partners put in capital as well to then become quote unquote co-founders? Uh, yeah, I, we, the two of the co-founders put in capital, one didn't because he just wasn't in a position to put in capital. Um, and then we did sort of classic, this is um, 2013, and we did sort of some classic um, trying to do friends and family, but found that actually finding angel investors who were slightly more professional angel investors was the way to go. And we found people who liked to write checks into marketplaces. Marketplaces weren't as saturated at the time as mm -hmm. they are now. So we found some people to help us get going there. Yeah. And so if you're able to share, of course, the more detail, the better, just so people can get a sense of what's possible when they're starting this sort of organization. It's, I mean, it's a disruptive opportunity, huge marketplace, needless to say, 20 grand buying into a $1.2 trillion marketplace. The, the potential for a pretty massive return is, uh, well, let's just say it's appealing at that point. So were you, what was the total amount then raised in in that first tranche and, and, and what was your equity position, uh, after that first raise? Yeah. So what we found with our first raise, so that was sort of our seed round yeah. rounds have changed, but that was our seed round. Um, raising our first sort of $500,000 was really hard. And that was what I was saying. It was 20 K checks and, and, uh, you know, calling everyone we could, um, but once we raised 500 K, we then raised 3 million really quickly. So mm -hmm. our seed round ended up being, I think it was 3.2 million. Um, but that was once we had 500 K people believed that it was actually going to be something beyond kind of a, a project we were doing in George's apartment, yeah. um, which we were doing. Um, but so that's what that looked like. And but that gets divided pretty thin, pretty quick quickly, right? So there's four of you to get to 3.2. I'm, I'm sure there are folks right now listening and, and going, geez, was, was there anything left? Like what, even after that first round when you have this, and I assume this is uh, pre-revenue to boot, right? So the, the idea here is to be able to build out the marketplace. So now it's completely just theory and whatever you can throw into a PowerPoint from a data standpoint. So did you end up with anything meaningful even after that first round? Yes. So we definitely got much more diluted in future rounds, but the idea was in future rounds, we had higher valuations. Um, and, and the one point there was we were able to generate revenue pretty quickly because of the, the sort of business we were building. Um, you didn't, we didn't have to have a whole lot of infrastructure before we could start essentially buying and selling used cars. 
Um, but I probably started after that round. Now I'm gonna, I actually do forget, but uh, it was between 15 and 20%. I think I, maybe I had 15% or so of the company back. Mm -hmm. So on, on a 3.2, and 3.2 was post or pre-money valuation when you, or that actually wasn't the valuation, that was the raise. So what was the, what was the actual valuation? And, the, and that's so interesting too, because pre-money, just going based on marketplace. So what, what was the pre and post money valuation? And actually as a VC, I would love to hear your definition for those who, when I talk about pre and post money valuations, I'd, I'd love for you to explain what that actually means. Yeah. So, um, so, so for us, we were raising a note. So we actually didn't have a pre money and a post money valuation. Mm. We were raising debt that was going to convert at some discount into the series a round of financing because presumably our series a was going to be priced at, and the people who were giving us um, the money as convertible notes were going to convert at some discount when some presumably big name investor was going to come in and write us a large check for our series a and just um, and just so we can clarify ahead. for folks so first of all that is so that is unsecured so that is completely a flyer, or did you guys write personal guarantees against any of that? No, it's not. We did not write personal guarantees against that. Okay. So yeah, so, just d we were really doing the classic Silicon Valley style fundraise where people are willing to give us money in hopes that they have a small percent of a really big outcome, but realizing that you know nine out of ten times or nineteen out of twenty times. Um, the investments go to zero or, you know, are not a huge home run, but if one out of 20 times it's a Google, that's the bet they're making. Mm -hmm. and, and so a small percent of Google is uh, still a huge, huge yeah. pot of money. And then can you just, sorry for it, you just want, want to make sure we just do one more thing here and just clarify for folks. So from, from a definition standpoint, so then how would you define, so you get the 3.2 and now you go into your series A and you have what's known as a pre-money valuation and then a post-money valuation in terms of raising those funds. You have all these people who are going to convert their debt into equity, right? Ownership of the company at that point. So can you just take people through what that actually means in terms of pre-money valuation versus post-money valuation and how that 3.2 million then converts over in the Series A? Yeah, so um, so in, in seed rounds now that I see more of, I do tend to see price rounds as opposed to debt. And what a typical round would look like would be someone raising um, – two on seven and two on seven means they're raising $2 million on a 7 million pre-money valuation, which means their post money valuation is 9 million. Um, and so it literally uh, just becomes the, the money in plus the valuation. Yep. But the way people talk about it, um, I don't watch shark tank, but I think the way like it, a classic shark tank would say, you're raising two on seven, meaning you raise $2 million. Your pre-money is, seven, your post money is nine. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Um, Richie, I know you got a million questions as well. Yeah. I just wanted to go back to kind of, since we're a show that is catering to people who either want to start something, grow something or exit and they're various stages. Um, one of the things that I heard in the way you started as a VC early, um, also sounds like 
how people invested in you too, which was just sometimes showing up and being that person that they can count on as a person. You weren't writing personal guarantees. So it sounds like somebody was doing the same thing to you. They believed in you and your partner and the vision and the opportunity was big enough that they're saying, well, she's a great worker. She's has a history. So sometimes just showing up and being the best you you can be can actually op- be an opportunity in that beginning stages because again there was no revenue yet um they're, they're banking they're banking on the people they're banking on the people yeah and so sure. th- th- i just didn't want to kind of go over that too quickly because some people think they have to have it all figured out but if you're just a kick-ass human being that's doing good things that in and of itself when you let people know what you're doing and the opportunity's big enough, mm-hmm. is literally, we've heard it many times now, people will invest in the person over the product almost every single time. Yeah. Yeah, and it is interesting too, many, and maybe you can speak to this just furthering that point. You know, a lot of folks have a great idea, but have a tough time assembling the right team to help bring that idea to fruition. I mean, with 10110 now, and based on your experience, I mean, and, and certainly it sounds like with Shift, you understood, and certainly now, and certainly understood then the power of of a team, and not just one person with a great idea. And you know, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to try to do this. I, I think that's kind of the cart and the horse for a lot of people is they just can't attract the right team to bring something to fruition. Maybe you can speak to the power of the team a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think to the point that both of you guys were making when um, when VCs are looking at a seed stage investment, meaning there isn't much traction, it is is clearly a bet on people. Uh, VCs will talk about they bet, they look for three things, people, product, and market. And they're evaluating those three things at the seed stage. So at later stages, when you're raising, you know, your $50 million Series B, Series C, people are looking at your spreadsheets. But when, when there aren't spreadsheets with years of history to look at, people are looking at people, product, and market. Mm. And so some of that is, is trying to understand who the people are, but who the people are and what market they're going after is also important. Um, but, you know, it's a trick to evaluate people in one way that we might evaluate a person. Let's say I'm looking at, at writing a check into Steve here. Like, I'm thinking, Steve, you need to show me that I need to believe that you have the grit and you have the um, the the persistence to be able to to bring a team around you. And so, I mean, there is a little chicken or the egg. Like if you say, well, I don't know how to find that team. I am looking to invest in entrepreneurs who figure out how to bring a great team around them because they need to be able to convince someone to join them, which is hard, especially if you don't yet have any way of paying people to join you. Yeah. Um, I recognize that's not an easy thing, but yeah. that is one of the things we look for is, is not just a solo founder, but a team of people. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any resources in terms of how to find some of those people if you have a, a good idea? I mean, like I, I, I shelved, I had, I talk about people, product, and marketplace. I mean, like I had an idea that was going to, really dismantle the whole world of real estate, really creating a, a third class of real estate. The company was called Latitude. I have, you know, the logo, the whole nine, like it was moving forward. And the idea was it was really going to bridge the gap between traditional home ownership and, uh, and what you do in terms of being a renter, where, in, you know, traditional home ownership, you got no flexibility at all, right? You're stuck there. You build equity. It's great as a renter. 
you have a little bit of flexibility, but you build no equity. So this is really going to create a third class of real estate that I was calling flexible housing, where people could move from company-owned to company-owned location as often as every 60 days. They'd have flexibility in that. They'd have privacy, so it's no co-living. And they'd be able to build equity as if they're a homeowner without the headaches of homeownership. So great people, you know, great product, great marketplace, huge opportunity. But finding the right team members proved to be a struggle. And then, you know, just kind of shook my head on and went, you know, if I'm really not that persistent and don't have that much grit behind it, maybe I don't have enough love for it to do it. And thus Podcast Magazine was born. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to Podcast Magazine. It's um, been certainly interesting to do podcasting. So let me answer just on that, like one of my lessons of Google or of Shift. Um, when I joined Google, we were doubling in size every six months. So I joined when there were 500 people. Wow. And I left when there were 60,000 people. Wow. Yeah. So um, the main thing we did was recruiting. And and at Google, there's a little joke now in Silicon Valley, but Google has interviewed every single engineer in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Maybe it's not true, but it, it, it's close to true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty close to true. And so my lesson of, of both of those experiences was that I needed to decide what percent of my time was recruiting and it was something like a third of my time was wow. recruiting. And if a third of my time is recruiting at Shift or at Google, that means like a third of my day. So three hours a day, I'm doing nothing but sourcing candidates, talking to candidates, closing candidates. Um, and, and so the time required to, whether that's get a co-founder, which is slightly different, or just hire people, like you need to set aside the time and, you know, for me, like different, depending on the role, depending on the situation, that's like saying, okay, I'm going to look at a company that's in, that's built something similar in real estate, let's say, and I'm going to call everybody at that company, or I'm going to send them a LinkedIn request. I'm going to try to get someone on the phone just to give me advice. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to figure out who has left the company that still is passionate about the space and might want to come work at my similar company. But I'm going to like, I am just pounding the pavement for hours and hours every day, trying to get in touch with the people uh, that I want to hire. And and we were fairly um, non-passive hirers. So we were not just sort of posting something on our website. Yeah. We were figuring out exactly our profile. And we were, you know, there was one candidate we identified and we spent maybe four months recruiting him and just like, like, let me take you to dinner. Like, come to our this, come to our that. Like, I'm going to show up outside your house if you don't like to turn my phone call at this mm-hmm. point. And he mm-hmm. finally joined. Yeah. No, I, I totally get that. So, Richie, I totally cut you off, and I'm sorry about that. That was rude. You were uh, you were about to ask <laughs> another question of many. No, I, I mean, it just kind of goes back to, it wasn't really a question. It was kind of a statement slash the question I was going to ask is kind of past now. Um, sorry about that. It, it just... <laughs> I keep going back to the beginning and it almost goes same with your latitude uh, project, Steve, is you have to be able to be a, a visionary enough to sell that vision. So they feel the passion that they want to be involved with something too. Um, whether even like back when we had Naveen Jain on and he was talking about he, whatever, he does a gut biome testing kit. If he would have started the conversation saying, I sell a gut bio-testing kit, that's like super boring and big deal. And some mm-hmm. people ask and some people won't, depending on how much they know about it. But he started with, I'm eliminating sickness. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. And it's like, I have this vision. I want to eliminate sickness. And you start with this big vision and it's, it's stated in such a way that someone wants to hear more. And then next thing you know, he's got access to IBM Watson. He's got access, you know, and people are giving him access to see, does he have the tenacity to keep this vision moving forward? Mm. And then once it's moving forward, then some people just, I want to be part of that movement. Yeah. So now you're not even necessarily always having a conversation about how much you have to pay somebody. They just want to be part of that movement. Mm. Right. And again, so mm-hmm. I'm, you see what I mean, there wasn't really yeah. a question. It's more just, I'm noticing all these observations from, yeah. you know, so many, let me ask you this then, and you take a baby from zero to over a hundred million in revenue or, or when you exited, where, where were you at revenue wise with shift when you decided to, to step down or, or you were asked to, were, were you asked to leave or did you step down? Um, funny question for some reason that, that tickled me. Uh, no, I did, I, I did leave. Actually, I was, um, uh, I was moving cities. I wanted to move to LA. So that was part of my decision. We, when I left, it was over a hundred million. Um, and it's probably at least double that right now. So did you have to let go of any sort of ownership position? Obviously, if you're not involved, you don't get, and I assume at some point, hopefully, you start paying yourself, you start making real money, you're involved on a day-to-day, you should be compensated for that. So on a day-to-day, you get paid, that's an addition to the equity. Did you have to relinquish anything in that transition? Yeah, I mean, there's now a lot of sort of these secondary options for um, for people who are big equity holders in private companies that have um, high valuations. So these are all of the the, you know, I don't know, Airbnb is still private, right? Like all of those sorts of companies where these people have been locked up, they have high valuations, they've been compensated in stock. Um, And so, uh, so there's, there's been some sort of, uh, I can't disclose all of um, my personal situation, but um, with our series D, we had a strategic partner, Lithia Motors come in. And so, um, so we negotiated a nice exit for me. Um, I'm no, I'm not um, day-to-day involved, but I'm still very close to the team. I mean, this yeah. is, as you said, my baby. Yeah. So just so we're clear here, it sounds like there was some degree of a liquidation event for you when you left, but it also sounds like there's a piece that you're still holding ownership of. Yes. Okay. I gotcha. Is the plan for shift to exit uh is it to go public is it to be acquired and to that end when you and your and if you go all the way back to the embryonic stages here did you sit around the table and go here is our exit plan like did you draw that on the board and you knew that what that was going to be and what you built was with that intention in mind uh yes so uh george i i think is george is my co-founder and ceo um, I believe he plans, uh, I, I believe he, um, would like to go public next year in 2020. Uh, I don't know that, you know, I, I don't know all the details there. So, yeah. um, but, uh, I think George has pretty much wanted to build a public company since I met him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, he, he, he has, um, he has, uh, the the desire to be running a public company, I think Shift has. Uh, I mean, I credit him with it being his vision always. And I probably there were times where he was really going swinging swinging for the fences in a way that I might have been actually okay to build a smaller business. Um, and and he's more of a you know let, let's build this big as fast as we can. Yeah. 
I got you. And so let's let's talk about then what you're doing now with with ten one ten and and going back to the fundamental question that Sergey posted posited consistently with you, which is just simply, you know, is this a five billion dollar business, right? For now, that's just one sort of line of revenue for those guys. It's just you know, a little five billion dollar little thing we got over here, but you know, so it's interesting. So I know without a shadow of a doubt that Podcast Magazine, as an example, is not a $5 billion business. Like it's just not right. I mean, there, there is a marketplace for it, but you know, I, I guess uh, there's two questions here. Number one, are we too caught up in building these behemoths in, in, in achieving these unicorn statuses and, 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 and this, you know, the next big thing, so to speak. And again, unicorn is a term that a lot of people use for a billion dollar plus company. And, and so is this hurting the entrepreneurial spirit? Is this helping? Are, are we like, does podcast magazine, as an example, doesn't happen if the criteria is we need to look at an opportunity that has a B in front of it. Right. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, are we, Yeah. Uh, how, how do we kind of reconcile the two? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are different things. So first off, I don't think it's uh, a bad thing going on right now in the U.S. in particular, because I'm more, you know, sort of domestically focused. Uh, I think it is incredible and awesome how everybody is becoming more entrepreneurial. And there's examples of everyone can see how someone else quit their day job to build something out of their passion and built it into a business. I love that you're doing this podcast. Um, and so I think that that is really alive and well in this country. It's one of the big bright spots. There are many things that I think are really broken in our country right now. Many. Mm -hmm. And one of the only things that I can really point to is, I mean, there's other things, but, uh, but innovation in our country is very much alive and well. Mm -hmm. That said, um, going the traditional venture capital route very much does um, does tend to lend itself to you need to sort of go billion dollar or go home kind of aspect, which yeah. is the, the VCs and it's the way that VCs are structured. So um, VCs need to make a return for their LPs or else their, their limited partners, the LPs won't keep giving the money. And in order to return the fund, if you're doing this um, sort of non-personal guarantee that you were talking about, a lot of your bets are going to go to zero. And so, you know, if you're a VC and you're making 10 bets and nine go to zero, or maybe don't go to zero, but they don't have big outcomes, yeah. then you need to find one that does have a billion dollar outcome. And so what you're looking for is each of your bets needs to potentially return the fund. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so there's that. That said, the venture capital is definitely not the only path to building things. And, you know, when you're talking to someone who's doing more of an angel investment, look, if I'm doing an angel investment and you're going to double my money, that's fantastic. If you can make my, you know, if I can invest in podcast magazine, $20,000 and you give me $40,000 in a few years, um, that sounds like a great return. Like, yeah. you know, the, the, we, we the have a convertible, we have a convertible note for you. Yeah. She's on the first cover. Right. Yeah. You made the cover LA, LA, <laughs> the LA venture podcast is featured. Forget Joe Rogan. You are on the cover. There we go. <laughs> That's Done. hilarious. Done. 
So, and, uh, and points all well taken, but let me ask you this because I know that there's a lot of folks out there and obviously you hear with Elizabeth Warren and a lot of, you know, Bernie and, you know, the whole nine, right? Just kind of going after the, the, the ultra wealthy, the 1% of the 1% and so on and so forth. And it kind of feels like a zero sum game to some extent as far as venture capital is concerned from the standpoint of how much is enough? And, mm. and, and, and at what point, like, if you look at a Kleiner Perkins, right. And you look at an Excel and, and even what you, I mean, you guys have had with 10, 110, you guys have had a phenomenal track record of, of exits and successful bets. And so is it just a game for you guys? Like, why do you keep doing it? How much is like, isn't, I mean, come on, Google, if, and just kind of reading between the lines, if you were there when there were 500 employees and you left when there were 60,000 I'm venturing to guess that you probably had some degree of stock options, some degree of upside from, you know, from a, an, an equity perspective, this employee stock option pool, you probably did really, really well. Do you, does this, so there's two questions there. Number one, how, when, when is it enough? And number two, does this actually, is this fulfilling for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, like I, I let me just explain a little bit about what we do. So, We'll write um, maybe a 750K check to an entrepreneur. We're usually their first big institutional check. And that is, I mean, that's, that's, our, that's what we mostly do. And so this is someone who's been asking their friends and family for these 20K checks. And they've gotten enough traction that they're able to raise their first institutional money and and, you know, I don't want to be too cliche, but it's a chance to kind of help make their dreams come true. Like yeah. it's giving them a real oh, 750K, you're off to the races in a way that 20K is not for some of these endeavors, depending on what someone is building. Mm -hmm. And and that's fantastic to, to, to be able to give someone their first 750K to then be able to go hire their team and, and actually build the thing they want to build. Yeah. But, but then to continue with their journey and, and now looking at companies that, you know, maybe it was, you know, two people in their apartment when you met them. And now they have, you know, 250 people in an office that I come squat in the corner of their office and ask to drink some of their coffee from time to time. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, being a small VC fund, we're kind of more like a startup. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not the big fancy, you know, I, I squat usually in someone else's office and they're usually a portfolio company who has way outgrown us. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so that said, I'm kind of with you on your question, the sentiment of your question, which is, I don't think there should be billionaires personally. Like I, that doesn't make sense to me in this society that we should, that anyone should be a billionaire makes mm -hmm. no sense to me. Um, and, uh, and I think the challenge is what, what is the right structure? Like, uh, I don't necessarily think that all these companies should have all this power. And yet um, there are realities of, do I think, do I think the government should control everything? And so I think, you know, if I could wave my magic wand, okay, now we're getting way outside my zone, right? Like I've been selling used cars for six years, but like <laughs> if I personally could wave my magic wand, um, I would build some really smart regul regulatory bodies really good ones, not, you know, people who are under-resourced. And I would also continue to depend on the private sector to build a lot of 
you know, innovation and run big industry. I wouldn't try to stop that from happening, mm -hmm. but I would just also have really good regulators. So, mm -hmm. so I don't know. I, that's why yeah. I, I, I have been selling used cars, as I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. And, and look, you know, no one's, I think the bottom line is that it's possible to do good and do well, for sure. The two do not have to be mutually exclusive. And like you said, I mean, just being able to, and it's not cliche, it's the truth. I mean, when you have someone who has this dream and who has this vision and their hearts are in the right places and, and they want to do good and do well with their company and they don't have the wherewithal to do it, they've tapped as many of their friends and family as they possibly can. And then someone like you comes in, you know, with 10110 here. And, and, and by the way, Minnie, I, I assume you're open to hearing from folks and you guys are probably always looking for, for opportunities as well. So, you know, it's not like this, you know, I think that's one of the things that I love so much about what you guys have done here. It's not like this, you know, kind of this billionaire boys club where you're just trying to keep it in this very exclusive tight knit group of folks that you'll invest in your organization is really open to all sorts of opportunities. And, and, and like you said, you, you, you cut that check and you, and you not only change the, the lives of, of course, the people in the organization, but then you change the lives of the people that now that organization can go out and hire who have wanted to have a better, a different, a new opportunity. So they go out and they hire those people, they create better products, programs, services, whatever it is, and their customers and their clients are impacted. And so it just, you, you talk about one plus one equaling three, venture capital, when it's deployed in the right ways, actually is a very good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's hiring and it's fantastic to watch people be able to, to, to hire teams. It's also the things they are building are often incredibly impactful. And I'm not extremely health tech focused, but the more I see of things, I mean, there's many industries, but yeah. health tech being one that I've just seen a few pitches, maybe, you know, this morning and yesterday, but you know, you, you talk to these people who are like, we can treat rare genetic diseases better and parents can have different resources when they're, you know, when their child is born with special needs and, you know, whatever the pitch is, there are a lot of things that it's not just about the teams they're hiring. It's actually about building things that have a real impact in the world. Yeah. So yeah. clearly I've drunk the Kool-Aid. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and, and we definitely appreciate your time here today. Let, let's give our folks an understanding of where you see some of the bigger opportunities. You know, a, a niche magazine is probably not going to have the largest marketplace. So from your perspective and you sit in, in a very interesting, you know, sort of uh, capper position. I mean, like, like you, you, you've got your, your fingers on the pulse of what's going on, certainly in Southern California, but even on a, on a much wider basis than that. And you sit down with folks on your, you know, on your podcast, the LA Venture podcast. And so you've got your finger on the pulse of a lot of what's going on. So if somebody is looking for a bigger opportunity, where, where do you see the the biggest market opportunities uh, over the next uh, just call it five to ten years yeah um I mean on on the one hand there's verticals on the other hand there's horizontals <laughs> just to be stating the obvious but you know I think there's a really interesting verticals I mentioned healthcare um, it could be agriculture it could be space it could you know you name it and one of the things that's interesting to me is when I meet an entrepreneur who really knows, 
that space. And like, I am not the sort of VC. And there are some who have a huge organization and they are sketching the future. I am much more um, uh, believing that it's interesting to fund entrepreneurs who've been spent, you know, two decades in um, agriculture and know that if you um, take data from satellites, you can do a lot more with crop yield. Um, and so we're funding the, how does tech disrupt one of these big verticals? Mm. Um, on the other hand, I think it's also interesting to slice it the other direction and think about, well, you know, now we've got computer vision. How does that change everything with, with computer vision? Now everyone's got, you know, an iPhone with an amazing video camera. What does that mean about how we communicate with each other? Um, government is a huge space, kind of what you were talking about, about mm -hmm. how are we, you know, in the big, big picture, how are we, you know, doing government? And then, you know, the thing that I think about the most in, in sort of a constant is just, and how do we end up doing all of this and building a society that's the sort of society we want to end up in? And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's great to, to think about all these things, but um, at some point, like, we can't end up with a society where we're, like, building things for the top half of society and not the bottom half of society. We build a great society, but we have people with food insecurity, you know, a huge percentage of our population has food insecurity. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I totally hear you. Richie, let me uh, make sure if you got any additional questions here for me, I'll give you that opportunity. I was actually just going to ask specifically, is there, is there a main uh, place where you, find like are you looking for people that come to you or do you go proactively look for people and if you do how do you find them yeah uh simple answer there is people come to me rather than me finding people um i am looking for someone who is uh knows something about you know the fill in the blank industry whether it's real estate or agriculture that i don't know so i don't know i don't know what i don't know i mm -hmm. guess or something um but at the same time, because we do write these checks and we're a small fund, there's four of us at, at 10110, um, uh, there's this huge deluge and it's very hard to sift through and really know, you know, what we were talking about before, which is we're funding entrepreneurs. So how do I know, how do I judge which of these entrepreneurs is, you know, uh, devoting their life to building this thing and is going to disrupt the whole industry? And so figuring out what are the signals to help us get through that. Um, and so a lot of times it's, um, it's a referral of some sort. And that's one of the challenges of venture. And one of the things that I think is a common complaint is it's, you know, you don't want it to be the old boys network. And yet most of these connections do come from someone knowing someone. Mm -hmm. um, but I often tell people like go through portfolio companies, like look through all the portfolio companies, find someone who worked at one of them, who can then make an introduction to the 10110 board member or the whoever, you know, VC who's on the board. So I think people have to sometimes get creative, but I mean, that's part of building a business. That's like closing your sales. Like you have to find a way to make a connection. Um, but you know, that people like will listen to me on, on a show like yours, know something more about what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. People leave reviews on my podcast. And I'm always like, Oh, you listen to my podcast. And then like, I'm more, <laughs> inclined to respond to them. I, that's too self-serving. But it's no, it's a, it is an example. Yeah, no, it's perfect. And and then the last piece would be, so I looked through the portfolio and was checking all the stuff out. You 
because you were mentioned you're a smaller sized company, it looks like you're mostly trying to get seed money in some most cases that you're going for. Is there a certain, I know yeah. you said people, product, market, but is there a certain place you'd like them to be as far as traction or something you look for that's kind of universal across your whole portfolio? So in case someone's yeah. listening and thinking about reaching out to you. Yeah. I mean, there's different things. So within that, we do tend to, to fund um, software and data as the moat. So there are people building fantastic direct-to-consumer businesses that might be venture-backable. It's not really what we know. It's just our backgrounds. All of us come from sort of software and data backgrounds. Um, and as far as that goes, because it is the cost of building software in particular um, with things like AWS has come down so much, we rarely fund someone who doesn't have a product out in the market, um, which is hard because it's a very frustrating thing for me to tell someone who I've gotten to know, I'm sorry, you're too early for us. Mm. Go shoes, you know, go essentially self-fund yourself for another six months and come back to me. Because I, I know that that's not a feasible thing for everyone is to just sort of fund themselves. But we usually look for a product in the market um, and customers who are willing to pay. So that's a big proof point is even having a few customers, depending on the sort of sale, um, but people who are willing to pay for a product. And yeah. then if you don't have, I have one more question. Sure. In four so, minutes. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> and then most people don't, you don't make your money until they either IPO or sold. And I noticed, you know, as I was looking through the portfolio again, quite a few sales. Do you help facilitate the sale? Do you make introductions as far as that goes too? Yeah, so um, the, there's a little bit of, because we're a seed funder, we're pre-Series A, some of what we are like most focused on is helping our companies raise a Series A. We Most of our companies are going to need to raise a Series A. Most of them are not going to become um, the eight, maybe the eight-figure business without raising more money, um, sort of by the nature of the way the, the venture world works. So we are very, very focused on getting them to a Series A, and we're making introductions and we're helping them with their product market fit and setting up the metrics and the infrastructure to do hiring. Um, that said, we still stick with them. It's not like we abandoned them at Series A um, because most of them still have a ways to go. It's not like Series A is the the, the end of the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. I mean, we could keep going and keep going here and there's so much more to cover. I mean, there were a million questions around shift that we could have gotten into, but uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll save that for another day and uh, and certainly do appreciate the time that you uh, were able to give us here today uh, on Beyond Eight Figures. And so if people want more information about 10110, about you personally, about the podcast, let's throw out some, uh, some, some places for folks to go. Great. Well, we are uh, 1010.net. That's our website. It has more information there. Um, as you said, it's the LA Venture Podcast. And, um, you know, I'm fairly promiscuous on LinkedIn. It's really where I get a lot of, I don't, I like when entrepreneurs hit me up on LinkedIn, I say, sure, let's connect. Um, I'm interested in connecting with entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, it's my new social media go-to phrase. I am promiscuous on Facebook. I am, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although, although the wife will not appreciate that. So, uh, but Minnie, we do really appreciate you hanging out with us here on beyond eight figures and uh and yes we definitely look forward to you being on the cover of the magazine sometime soon so we'll uh, <laughs> that was awesome. we'll make that happen 
All right, we're going to let you jump, and uh, Regina, I'll just wrap here, but thank you so much for joining us. And uh, again, check out everything that's going on at 10110.net and Minnie Ingersoll over there. So, wow, uh, you know, it's always interesting to, and, and Minnie's a, a very unique uh, guest for our show from the standpoint of not only having the experience in uh, the venture capital world, but also from the standpoint of having been uh, a founder, co-founder mm-hmm. of a, a very large company. I mean, God, that's uh, that's that is a that is an IPO in the making, and she'll obviously do really, really well on that. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting. Like this is this is an exact example of one of those shows where we wish sometimes you could go two, three hours even and break it up into segments because yeah, I mean, she is effectively helping create eight-figure businesses. For sure. I don't think they would invest in anything that, it, well, even, I don't know if they go to, to, to Sergey's level there of, is this a $5 billion opportunity? But, you know, if you if you say to yourself, it's a at least a billion-dollar opportunity and you miss by half, you're still done pretty good there, my friend. You know, yeah. that's, uh, that's a nine, well, that's in the, obviously 500 million. It's a nine-figure-plus business. So, you know, maybe that, in, in, as an entrepreneur, as I was saying, when that's kind of the struggle, is do you do sort of a passion-type project even though it, it's not a billion-dollar-plus opportunity? You know, not that I'm going to keep beating the horse here, but, you know, clearly the magazine is not. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that, that I really want to do and I'm looking forward to doing and will be launching here soon. But it's definitely not a billion-dollar opportunity. It's at a billion-dollar vertical, though. Vertical, yeah. Right, so there's going to be people that might want to acquire something to add to theirs that is a billion-dollar opportunity, so yeah, you never know. point well taken. All right, so check out uh, everything that Minnie Ingersoll is doing over there at uh, 10110. And uh, boy, I tell you, it's just great to have uh, so many awesome people say yes to the show. Hope you guys are enjoying Beyond Eight Figures. And make sure you do also check out our other show, Reinvention Radio. If you have not listened to that podcast, we'd love to have you jump over there as well. Mary Galay will be back with us next week, I am sure. And so for Richie Ote, White Wade and Kelly Poker, I'm Steve Ulsher. We'll talk to you guys next time.